Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Right now, if you accept the left-right dichotomy, um, then we're in for gridlock, polarization, strife, violence, worse. Um, and arguing from that perspective will just uh, drive us all crazy over time. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Forward Party's founder, Andrew Yang, about the future of American democracy. Andrew shares the insights he's learned from his presidential and mayoral campaigns. His major realization is that America's two-party system is designed for polarization and dysfunction, with the media and the internet further inciting division. Polarization may eventually escalate into violence. In order to shift towards a human-centered economy, Andrew believes we need to change our political dynamics and incentives. We also touch on the topics of tribalism, rationality, automation, education, leadership, and governance. This is a really rich conversation with someone I hugely respect. So without further ado, I bring you Andrew Yang. Hi, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you again. Uh, our last chat was was pretty awesome. I thought so concerned. too, Scott. How are yeah. you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. You're, uh, you're a busy guy these days, huh? I guess I am busy. I've got a few things cooking, um, but it, it feels good. I feel like we're... Uh, doing the right things in the nick of time. Awesome. Well, let's have, you know, last time, let, let's kind of pick up that baton of that, that human element, you know, our human conversation. I really loved your new book, which I have uh, prominently displayed behind me. And uh, I thought it was really cool how you talked about your childhood. You talked about growing up and uh, something we have in common. Another thing to add to the list of something we have in common is that we were both bullied as kids and, uh, and kind of felt maybe a little bit like an outsider. Right? Did you you feel quite quite like an outsider growing up? Oh yeah, I was the only Asian kid in my class, uh, maybe one of the only ones in my grade. And child of immigrants, had skipped a grade, so I was extra scrawny and small, and I would get mocked for all sorts of things. Uh, being Asian, most uh, most prominent <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> among them, uh, you know, I got called gook and chink and a bunch of other things fairly often. 
You said, I spent a lot of my childhood shy, angry, and trying to do anything possible to avoid being a nerd. Were you in gifted education growing up? I was in all of the accelerated and advanced classes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like when you were growing up, you dreamt of being in politics, right? That wasn't your grandiose dream as a kid, right? Like, I'm going to run for president someday. Like a lot of presidents when they were children, I think they dreamt that. But that wasn't one of your dreams, was it, growing up? No, no. My dreams were to be a judge and a secret agent uh, <laughs> and then a business person. So I, I had a few different dreams. Mm. And then you've had some fascinating jobs before you went into politics. You were a, a nightclub promoter, right? You st- tell, tell me a little about Ignition NYC. I was a nightclub promoter. So my first startup had just failed. I was approximately 26, 27 years old. I think it was my 27th birthday where I had a birthday party and all these people showed up that I did not know. A lot of them were Asian. Uh, they drank a lot. And so I looked and said, you know, I think I could throw a party and have a bunch of people show up. That seems like it would have some value. So I got a couple of business partners and we lined up a venue and had a party. It was a really good party, I'm proud to say. And so at that point, the people I was with were like, hey, let's do this again. So Ignition NYC was born. We had a mailing list. Uh, We would just go and throw parties uh, in venues, primarily in Tribeca downtown. This was a year or so after 9-11. And so Southern Manhattan was empty-ish. So if I went to a downtown venue or bar or club and said, I can bring whatever the number is, uh, 200, 300 plus people can I have the venue that night and to share the bar? They would say yes. And then it was up to me whether I wanted to charge cover. I generally did not, um, which made it a really compelling value for people because then, you know, they would just show up with their friends and have a good party. And we'd make money, not big money, but modest money. Our high point was a New Year's Eve party at a lounge called Scopa, which no longer exists Hmm. on Madison Avenue and... Because it's New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve in New York City is a real time of price gouging <laughs> where uh, New Year's Eve parties were routinely know, 70, 80 bucks or more. Uh, you got some booze out of it, but people were always like, oh, freaking hate it. And half the time you wouldn't even have a good time. So we got a venue, Scopa, and blew it out. And that was maybe the high, that was the high point of my time as a nightclub promoter, that New Year's Eve party. <laughs> I love hearing about that. So I love hearing about that side of you. I love hearing about that. That sort of um, what what would you call that side of you? It's not. It, it's uh, I don't want to just reduce it to the party side, but kind of like the bringing people together to have fun side. I mean, how would you describe that? It was funny, Scott. I was reflecting a little bit on my younger years, and after my first startup died, I was a bit wounded, and so throwing these parties seemed like a way to solve a bunch of problems. It actually was originated. I should give credit to a friend of mine who said, hey, how do we become cool uh, in our 20s because we can't afford a big apartment, which I could not. I had a roommate. And so I said, you just throw a party and then it's not your apartment. It's in a lounge. And so from that, I you know started throwing these parties. But I wasn't a really big partier. Like I would often not even drink uh, at these parties or uh, maybe I'd nurse one drink the whole night and I would play host and troubleshooter and whatnot. So it it was a business for me. 
it was a fun business. It, it was good to be able to combine a business and your social life and you have something to do and you make people happy. And the, I, I have to say that throwing events is phenomenal training for business generally because it actually takes a real thick skin to plant the flag and say, hey, party, everyone come. And the fact is if no one comes, then it sucks. But if everyone comes, then it's happy. So there is like a little bit of courage and deliverables involved where I would look up sometimes. It'd be a Friday night and I would talk to my team and I'd be like, hey, what does the RSVP list looks like? And let's say it was light. Let's say that, you know, like 100 people had RSVP'd and you assume only half of them show up. And so I looked at that and said, well, that's unacceptable. And then I would do a bunch of last minute things to try and move the needle and lo and behold, when I was running a company years later, I would do the same sort of thing. I'd be like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> and then you'd be like, well, we have to do something about this. Or uh, when you run a nonprofit, it's the same thing. So, or a political campaign um, where you, you're looking at uh, trying to move people in a particular way. Event expertise and experience is fantastic training. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise if, if you decide to dabble in this space. And anyone can do it. The costs are so low. Uh, anyone can do it if you just have, you know, an email list, including your friends. Like, it doesn't need to be grandiose. You could get mm. 10 people together for a barbecue or something like that. Yeah, I love that space. Um that's awesome. That's awesome. This is something I don't think you talk about uh, that much. So it's, it's cool to hear your kind of insight. Into that. Yeah, time has passed, man. Um, but it, it used to be a big part of my identity. I was also mostly single during these years. Mm. That That is relevant information for sure. Like I would go home after the party also single. Like it's not like, you know, there was a <laughs> <laughs> You'd go home after the party. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that would like happen. A... I very much remember that. Oh. Well, hopefully not every night. But okay, look, what I really, really love about your work, kind of the global, the global sort of thread that runs through so much of what you do is this kind of human-centered aspect to it and wanting to kind of humanize everything. And of course, the economy, but there are other aspects as well. At what point did you decide that you wanted to run for president and that, and that the, the, the humanizing of the economy was, was a really, really important issue? I had spent six years or so running a, a nonprofit that I'd started, Venture for America. And over those years, I became concerned and convinced that there were big changes afoot in the U.S. that were making things worse for a lot of people. And because I'd been trained in a certain way, my thesis was, look, we just need to have our smart people, our human capital, our energy doing different things in different places, and all should be well. And my thesis was, if you get the small army of people that are heading to Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and the like, heading to startups in Detroit and New Orleans and St. Louis, then that would fix things. Uh, it was inspired by a guy named Charlie Kroll I met who had started a company in Providence, Rhode Island uh, that had 120 employees. And I thought, wow, like that that's what we need. You have innovation in different places and 120 jobs and Providence, a big deal and all, all of this. I came to doubt whether my vision would work around 2016. And then Donald Trump became president in 2016. Mm. And then I thought, well, someone should try and raise the alarm over what I saw as progressive transformation and automation of the economy. 
And I've been around a bunch of our elected representatives over the preceding several years, so I was confident no one would do anything. Uh, and it was foolhardy, Scott, but it also seemed necessary. And I thought, well, what's the downside? I spent three years toiling in obscurity. No one cares. People laugh at me. And then I go home. And I'm like, well, I tried. I mean, I can live with that. But then the upside was accelerate the end of poverty and improve the human condition. And so I thought, well, that's a pretty good good trade-off. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, I'd say. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. I think you probably gathered about that from the book. Did you gather that from the book? I did. Oh, yeah, I did. I, it sounded like a zoo. From, uh, you know, reading the book sounds like the whole thing. You said, quote, it was like a reality show that needed you to assume a role in order to survive. Is that not what you expected? Like, did you, like, what did you expect going into it? My expectations were that people would be excited about it uh, because of the intellectual case I was making. And the, the thing I missed that I probably should have realized was that they need a human being to get connected to that you, you need to try and build that interest in yourself, Andrew Yang, the human. And you saw from the book I originally entitled the campaign UBI 2020 because it was just universal basic income. It's so obvious. Everyone, let's just get, let's just get everyone a thousand bucks a month. And it became Yang 2020 because my team was like UBI 2020, like no one's going to give a shit. And they were correct. Now, going into it, I didn't think that anyone would care about Andrew Yang either. <laughs> and... And so the, the, so my, my thought was that if I brought people the facts, then they would figure it out. And the reality was that facts are secondary or tertiary now in American life. And what people care about is characters. And so in order for us to contend at all, I needed to become a character. Hey everyone, I'm excited to announce that the 8-week online Transcend course is back! Become certified in learning the latest science of human potential and learn how to live a more fulfilling, meaningful, creative, and self-actualized life. The course starts on March 13th and will include more than 10 hours of recorded lectures, 4 live group Q&A sessions with me, 4 small group sessions with our world-class faculty, a plethora of resources and articles to support your learning, and an exclusive workbook of growth challenges that will help you overcome your deepest fears and grow as a whole person. There are even some personalized self-actualization coaching spots with me available as an add-on. Save your spot today and get 50% off the normal price by going to transcendcourse.com. Sign up for the early bird today and get 50% off at transcendcourse.com. We have so much fun in this course, and I look forward to welcoming you to be a part of the Transcender community. Okay, now back to the show. I'm, I'm truly interested in the psychology of that whole experience, and I'm familiar with the whole literature, the psychology literature on power and how power affects our psychology and our empathy levels. How did you kind of start to see your own psychology change when you got to the point where people were telling you how to dress, how to walk, and, um, and everywhere you went, you were the center of attention at a certain point? How did that kind of, well, you, you talk a little bit about how it screws with your mind in, in the book, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. My primary struggle, Scott, was that I'm not that extroverted a person, and so after a day of campaigning, I would just shut down like a crash test dummy or a puppet whose strings have been cut where I just be like, oh, I mean, and in the hottest days of the presidential, I had advanced staff advancing my room. So I'd get there and like my, you know, toiletries would be out or my suitcase and there'd be some stuff like people would try and make it so that it was habitable. And 
all of the things that you'd expect a normal person to do when they come back to their room, which would be get changed, uh, call their family, you know, like, just like behave like a normal person when you get home. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the time I didn't have the energy to, to do even really basic things. Uh, and my wife started to understand this about me too. Mm-hmm. So the strain I had was that I felt like I was an instrument and I would get up and play, 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 and then get put in my case at the end of the day and then repeat mm-hmm. and do it the next day. Uh, and uh, over time, the problem was that it started to really drain me and also make me feel not just depleted, but but just kind of uh, um, inhuman, uh, like yeah. uh, like I was an automaton. Uh, and so I would be doing all these things to try and prevent myself from feeling that way. And, and it, it's an interesting tension because if you're a staff then and you're around a person. And so some of the people that knew me well started to get what makes me tick and were like, okay, I get it. Like if if I let Yang wander off and uh, go into a random coffee shop and whatnot, that's like a better thing to do than being like, hey, hey, next thing, next thing. Because like the way you think of a productivity on a campaign is output. It's like if Yang has a spare five minutes, then I should try and get him to call someone or do this or do that. And that, that would be productive. But at the extreme end, that ended up becoming counterproductive because then I would just do things worse <laughs> or, or, uh, or um, become negative. Um, you know, so it, it was that, that kind of struggle. I mean, what sort of anxiety management techniques do you have? And not just anxiety management, but you seem to have this great ability to constantly renew the energy but you do it in an authentic way. And this is something I, I like about you. Every time I talk to you, it feels like, not like I'm talking to a politician, but I'm talking to, well, dare I say a friend, <laughs> you know, or just like a, a human. But you're also, you're an authentic. Like uh, we started off today uh, before we even started recording. I said, like, how are you? And you're like, I'm okay. And I was like, wow, what a... What an honest answer, <laughs> you know, like you, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very subtle thing to just say I'm okay, but you know, someone who um, uh, is trying to put on a, a show and kind of not and be, you know, be something that they're not feeling would be like, I'm great, you know, and how are you, you know, and I really like your authenticity in that way. So how do you balance your authenticity with that, that feeling or that need to keep renewing this kind of interest in people when you're talking to someone, when you're talking to people so long and over, you know, like you said, you're an introvert. So I totally resonate with that. Well, now it's easier because I've got a more sustainable pace. Running for president at its height was uh, extraordinarily demanding on that side. Mm. Running for mayor was extraordinarily demanding in the same way. Um, even more extreme, actually. Running for mayor, I, I, I found to be harder in, in part because when you're running for president, there's just some natural distance baked in between events where you'd be in a rental vehicle for an hour. <laughs> Whereas... <laughs> Uh, in a place like New York City, you know, you, you could be in front of people for a higher percentage of the day. Mm-hmm. So now it's a little easier for me to maintain like a healthy level of energy. I try and exercise. I try and get outside. I try and do basic things. And I, I also try and remind myself how fortunate I am because, you know, I've got a great life. Uh, you know, I've got a family that uh, has no idea what I'm doing most days, which is great. <laughs> there, there are people who look to me for uh, a sense of positivity or perspective. So 
No, it, it, it's it's good. One of the things I also remind myself, Scott, is that there there will be a day at some point, inevitably, when no one cares about anything I'm doing. So if people care now, then you know I should just be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Scott. As an example, you're a great guy and a great thinker, and you know decided to have me on your podcast. It's very nice. Well, thank you so much. Well, I mean, it goes both ways. The the gratefulness aspect to it. I mean, you know, having a conversation, it's no easy task having a conversation of the future of American democracy. And so it's sort of like you identify some really tangible problems, though, which I really do appreciate. Uh, one is changing the incentive structures. Um, so relating to the presidential campaign, you know, you talked about uh, the media incentive structures and other incentive structures that may not be getting us to be moving in, in the, the healthiest direction politically. Can you kind of talk a little about what is, what is wrong with some of those uh, incentives? Yeah, it, it's really bad, Scott. And I think most people recognize the problem even more now. It's funny, as I wrote the book right before January 6th, and then January 6th happened, and, and now people are waking up in many ways to the magnitude of the challenge. But you have media organizations that very much reinforce your ideological beliefs and so we all know, I mean, on one side, it's uh, New York Times and MSNBC and the gang. And then uh, on the other side, it's Fox and all the conservative voices. Then there are folks like you, and I like to put myself in this camp, and that we're kind of independent thinkers. Uh, you're hyper-rational. I like to think I'm lucid most of the time. And th- these things don't fit neatly into an ideological bucket. Uh, they, they don't fit into a partisan bucket. So... The media landscape right now is separating us into warring ideological tribes. And that's getting compounded by social media. Uh, And by the way, we have a two-party system. So uh, you have political warfare going on any given day. And so this is going to get worse, not better, progressively. The dangers are asymmetrical. People will say, like, hey, you have, you know, excesses on both sides, which I agree with. But the threat of violence very much emanates from the far right uh, and uh, people who um, see violence against the government as almost their, not just that like a a right or responsibility, but, uh, you know, like an act of patriotism. So uh, in in that context, uh, you're unfortunately going to be prone to increasing polarization uh, and worse over time. So there are three layers of incentives, I like to say. Number one, the political incentives that if you have a job in office, your keeping your job is based on whether you placate and please the 10 to 15% most extreme partisans in your party, in your district. This is even more true now that 90% or so of seats are safe seats. So you're not going to be contested in the general. Then you have the media organizations incentives, and then you have social media pouring gasoline on the whole thing. So in that environment, you can see why we're living in two versions of the same country or really maybe limitless versions of the same country where people have different facts that they can turn to. Yeah, yeah. I I clearly see the problem with the duopoly, as it's called. Um, You know, right now, 10% of American voters elect essentially 83% of the representatives. So it does seem like we're, you know, parties, uh, political uh, candidates have to appease the extremes versus the incentives to appease the majority. And you see that as a problem, correct? Oh, yeah. How could you think that it's not a problem? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. okay, but some people don't see that as a problem. 
So not everyone. So the, those who are that extreme don't see that as a problem. <laughs> and so I'm I'm all about trying to figure out different you know perspective taking and to figure out how we can get everyone on board right the get 100 on board with with this idea and those who are on the extreme would argue those who are far left extreme for instance would argue that there are some really really significant changes that have to be made that can only be made in a radical sort of way and the people in the far right feel the same exact way as well right about what they're trying to do so psychologically how can you convince people with that mindset that they can have the changes that they want to see in the world by being more moderate politically. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, I, I 100% see it. And one of the things I, I do want to say is that I too believe that we need very dramatic fundamental changes. I campaigned on a thousand bucks a month for everyone to strike a lot <laughs> of people. True. is very dramatic. Uh, and so the, the first thing is you uh, have to try to extricate yourself from this entire left right spectrum which is very hard to do when you talk about politics. The, the second thing is that to the extent that there are problems in the Democratic Party, I think they're very different than the problems in the Republican Party, whereas in the Democratic Party you have a bit of a conflict or a tension between what people call the progressives, which are folks who want um, very big changes. Uh, many of those changes I'm totally aligned with. And then the more, quote-unquote, moderate wing of the Democratic Party, which most people would regard as uh, what Joe Biden represented coming in. On the Republican side, it's different, where you know, the, the people on the far right are very conservative Trumpers who have a different take on 2020 vote totals and a bunch of other things. So I, I often say, look, like we're right now rewarding the extremes on both sides. And then uh, people on the left are like, hey, you know, like uh, casting us as the problem isn't correct. Um, the problem is the bought and sold, uh, corrupt part of the Democratic right. Party. Um, right. And that there are elements of that that like, uh, I, I agree with in the sense that like, I am for some very big goals. The, the thing that I've concluded, though, Scott, is that the model that people have in terms of how they think we're going to accomplish any of these goals uh, is, is in, in my mind, due for an evolution, where if you were to start from the far left and say, my goal is to transform the Democratic Party and then pass all these big changes and whatnot. You, you, if you looked at the, the numbers, you'd see that uh, that is going to be very difficult, maybe impossible in the current constitutional order because certain states, let's call them Wyoming or Montana or, or whomever, are very overrepresented in uh, the Senate and in the Electoral College. And so if you want big sweeping changes, you're unlikely to get them by just, for example, flipping the Democratic Party and then making these changes happen. Um, now, some people will then look at it and say, well, then, you know, amend the Constitution, make it so that, uh, you know, Wyoming uh, doesn't have uh, as many senators as California and whatnot. And then I, I respond to that as that that is virtually impossible. <laughs> there, there, there's no way to make those changes. And so right now, if you accept the left-right dichotomy, then we're in for gridlock, polarization, strife, violence, worse. And arguing from that perspective will just drive us all crazy over time. And that the real need is to change the political dynamic so that uh, you don't have just two sides. You don't have sides that are being controlled by the hyper-partisans in those parties. If you were to get the average Republican voter to sit down and say, 
how do you feel about the drug companies? You want to stick it to them? And be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the problem right now is that that's not the the true nature of the choice. Uh, you know, that that person's interests aren't being re- reflected by what the their representative is going to do. So that that's the set of changes you need to make. The, the, du- the duopoly itself is actually very much designed for stasis and inaction and dysfunction and polarization. So with that as your understanding, then you think, okay, the real problem is the, the nature of these institutions. Can you change them so that they're more genuinely representative? Can, in my ideal world right now, we would have five political parties. And if you had that, then someone like Trump running would not be as much of an existential threat as it, in my opinion, is for, for democracy. And would the chances of having something like universal basic income pass then go way up? In my opinion, yes. So, uh, so that that's what I'm focused on right now with the forward party. That was a bit long-winded. Sorry about that, Scott. Oh, not at all. No, no, no. I, I love that response. Um, I mean, I'm all for this idea, um, but I also like to look at it, as you understand, from the perspective of even even the minority majority. <laughs> so they're the minority majority. You know what I mean, right? Like the the extreme minority, but they're actually uh, have the most power in a lot of ways um, in our political system. Well, well, right right now, a lot of people, Scott, have what I call negative power, which is interesting. Which is I can't do anything, but I can keep you from doing anything. Mm. Which then drives everyone crazy. Uh, Francis mm. Fukuyama called it the vitocracy. Like we we live in a vitocracy now. And the the separation, too, is that if you have a candidate who runs on big promises and then they get there and be like, well, can't do any of these things, then then people get very frustrated. Of course, yeah. Well, I'm going to quote you here. You say, the duopoly is going to kill us. The two sides of the duopoly don't really care about getting it right. They just care about eking out the next win. You know, even what I said right there in that book, I might not even have been right there in that sometimes they don't even care about eking out the next win. Mm. For sure, for sure. But but the the getting it right part. So in your eyes, is getting it right? Is that being aligned with the truth? Is that that that's a whole buffet of things, right? The getting it right part, right? Can you unpack that a little bit more for me? Yeah, and, and this is one reason why we should be so concerned, Scott. Is getting it right would be improving people's way of life. Getting it right would be longer lifespans, better educational outcomes, um, more job satisfaction. Better drinking water and cleaner air. Like, you know, you, you name a bunch of things, be like, yeah, that, that's pretty good. Better mental health. Um, but right now, no one actually is rewarded for improving any of those things. Uh, it's irrelevant. They're politically irrelevant. And that has to be the change of the transformation. You can see it now with this child tax credit, which I'm very pro. Uh, it lifted several million American kids out of poverty, which I think most people would agree is a good thing. Its future is now in jeopardy. And you look at that and say, well, if 442 economists say we should continue this forever, uh, what is the holdup? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's right now in jeopardy because of the deadlock in Congress. So that, that to me would be getting it right, is that if you hit on a policy that actually delivers value for the American people, then we should lean into that. Um, and right now, we don't have a sense as to what policies are good or bad because even our view of reality has become partisan. Mm, very true. Uh, one of my favorite psychologists, Abraham Maslow, as you know, he's one of my favorite psychologists, he, he said we need a society where virtue pays. 
And one of your principles of the Ford Party is grace and tolerance. Loved that, by the way. Loved it. And uh, wondering how in the world can we change the incentive structure of political campaigning so that grace and tolerance pays politically? The biggest change we could make would be to shift to nonpartisan open primaries and ranked choice voting so that if I was like a forgiving sort, I was graceful and tolerant, then maybe there'd be a subset of people that became very you know, enamored with a particular candidate who's a little bit more of a bomb thrower or whatnot, but that person didn't enjoy majority appeal. Um, And if you had a ranked choice voting system, then the person who gets 51% of people to say, yeah, I'm cool with that person, would then win. You would reward positive campaigning and punish negative campaigning to a higher degree. Um, So a lot of it is in the process itself. Uh, I think a lot of Americans want more grace and tolerance. The problem is it's, it's not rewarded politically or in the media or via social media right now with the incentives as they stand. That's for sure. That's for sure. I mean, that's all tied together with the uh, being rewarded for the extremity and the, um, the vitriol. I mean, I know that I'll probably get more likes if I say something incredibly divisive. Uh, my, my tweets that say like, look, everyone, we just need more love. Don't get as many likes as when I say something that's like everyone can kind of take a stand on. Oh, give me something that got rewarded a lot, Scott. What did you say that it's like, oh, that one hit the chord? Hey, you know what? Actually, I, I almost want to take back what I said because I did have this tweet where I uh, were very much aligned in, in what you're talking about that did do pretty well. It said, oh, <laughs> of course, I can't find it right now. But it said we need a um, a society basically where instead of everyone fighting, everyone uh, coming for their ideas from their own ideologies, we all have a shared commitment to the truth. And we, we're like committed to the same shared reality. Now that did very well. It's interesting because you can have some of these kinds of statements that can, it feels like it can unite people from very different camps before you start getting to the specifics of it. <laughs> but I like these kind of general statements where you can get on board people who would normally not talk to each other. And then kind of get at least get them in the same room. They're all on like Scott Barakoff's Twitter page, for instance. And then we can be like, okay, now let's like kind of talk specifics. So I do notice there are some real grace, uh, love, kind of uh, truth-seeking tweets that do well, but they kind of do well for individuals for different reasons. Does that make sense? It does. And, and Scott, I love that message. What it made me think of is. Uh, this conservative statement that I see often is the facts don't care about your feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny that that's a conservative sentiment because it's something I that I actually can get behind in, in large part. It's like, yeah, that, you know, some things are factual. Bill Maher just put out a video about how Democrats wildly overestimate the chances of being hospitalized uh, uh, if you contract COVID. Um, I think 70% of Democrats had it at 20% or higher. If you get COVID, you go to the hospital, which, by the way, I mean, that would be a horrifyingly high level. I mean, the real number is like 1% to 5%. Um, and so one of the, the issues we're having is that um, when you talk about various facts, they have become politicized in various ways. And then if you question it, then you're questioning a team or a tribe. So uh, I couldn't agree more with your sentiment that we have to settle on a few facts and uh, a certain objective view of the world to the extent we can measure it and say, okay, if these, these are the baselines, let's agree on them and then let's go from there. That's actually the essence of the message of the forward party is that, look, just give me your baseline, give me what you want to achieve, and then let's compete on that. 
Um, but no one really is competing on policy anymore. I talked to a guy today who's one of my new heroes. Uh, I like and admire you a lot, Scott. I, I like and admire this, uh, this gentleman named Jason Saul. He started something called the Impact Genome Project. And uh, I think it's IncomeGenome.org. But what he does is he says, look, instead of buying activities, we should buy outcomes. So if I'm a foundation and I want a thousand kids to learn better, I just say I want a thousand kids to learn better. And then organizations uh, then bid on that and say, like, you know, like, uh, what's that? You're going to give me a thousand bucks a kid? Like, I can do that. Give me a million dollars. I can do that. And then they audit it. And you can then have organizations that can deliver results then get the resources to do that. And Jason previously had worked in government, and he said that the government is often doing none of this. Um, foundations struggle with it, where a government will put millions of dollars into a program. Did the program deliver results? Unclear, like no one really knows, like the money got spent anyway. And then by the time that happens, then the government has its own interest in saying, well, of course it worked because by the way, we spent the money and you know, I proved it and the rest of it. <laughs> so that there's, there's like a, you know, a circularity. So what, what Jason's trying to do is say, look, like, let, let's just try and figure out what the results you want are. And then we can have a nonprofit deliver it maybe, or the government maybe, or a company maybe. And, and I, I love this approach because it lines up with this facts-based governance, yeah, governance that, that, yeah. that you want, you know, and, and now, I mean, this is one of the problems is that your political incentives are not around this version of efficiency. And it's one of the frustrations we have is that you can tell you're pumping money into dysfunctional bureaucracies and systems. You don't get results, and then you get madder. Then the Republican attitude is like, cut it, cut it, cut it. And you're like, well, that's not really what I want. And then Democrats are like, you know, like to attack it is to attack, you know, democracy itself or <laughs> or something and you could be like well you know i i can want these outcomes it turns out that democrats and republicans all want the same outcomes um you know in slightly different orders but those outcomes are jobs uh schools healthcare, public safety slash low crime a decent environment and like those are the big ones now they, they get reshuffled a little bit if you're talking to Democrats or Republicans, but they're essentially the same, you know, they, they just have a couple of positions flipped. So if you yeah. could actually get to a point where you're competing on who's delivering on these things, that would be the game changer. Uh, but that's a very, very long distance from where we are now. Yeah, yeah, I love but I love that idea. So you started kind of going through like Maslow's hierarchy of needs there about the kind of needs that all humans want. And I've never heard anyone say that uh, Republicans uh, only want this subset of Maslow's needs and Democrats only want this subset of Maslow's needs. You know, I would add to the list of the things you mentioned, like connections, uh, like personal connections, like relationships, uh, people that care about you, some sort of level of self-esteem or some sort of um, a healthy sense that you're you're reaching your goals. And uh, a lot of those lower needs that you just mentioned um, are absolutely essential for, for being able to reach higher needs of self-actualization for sure. Uh, what I loved about, one of the things I loved about your book is you have this whole section, New Measure for a New Economy. And I was like, yeah, you should see my notes in this. Um, yes, yes, yes. Because what gets measured gets counted or counts in some ways, right? So if you say... Um, we're actually going to track 
pre and post test and interventions and and political because when when people are uh, politicians are on the campaign trail they say all sorts of things and no one holds them accountable for those things right um, in a fact based way in like a like like who's like why how come how come when people get um, elected into office the first thing they they hire isn't like a size like a data scientist who like keeps them honest <laughs> and tracks them starting from day one to day to to make sure that there are like all these measures are are statistically and significantly statistically significantly growing and practically growing with high effect sizes how come we don't we don't put the mouth where the you know uh, put put the money where the mouth is there. Uh, well, I, I confess I've run for office and uh, a data scientist was not the first person we hired. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a too nerdy, too nerdy of a suggestion? <laughs> no, I mean, we eventually hired one on the presidential um, for, for sure. Uh, but in, in the beginning, you don't necessarily have the resources or the data, um, but you get there. Certainly for governments, you would want one. Yeah. Uh, so I, I see the the need for more effective use of data at the public level, for sure. Like, we should be hiring mm. squadrons of data scientists uh, at the municipal level. Mm. And so, you know, one thing that the, the people in the field of pop psychology have argued about is instead of looking at economic outcomes around the world, look at life satisfaction outcomes. So that's, that's one big call, you know, within the, within the field of pop psychology. And I, I went to, like, a UN meeting about that uh, where they released a report um, where some countries are actually significantly changing those metrics and of what what matters you know and what they're kind of counting what are some uh, what are some of the major sort of uh, new measures you think we could implement that that would really uh, uh, help with well-being and psychological health in America freedom from addiction would be very high sense of public optimism uh, right now, the American dream is dying. Uh, people feel like their kids have worse futures than they did. And in that environment, some very, very terrible things will happen. Uh, That's so sad. I'm sorry? I feel like you just said, I feel like you just said that. I want to cry. That's like so sad. It's super sad. The American sad. dream is dying. It, Scott, do you, do you have kids yourself? Not yet. I didn't think no. so. So, yeah. you know, it, it's... Why didn't you think so? <laughs> well, I mean, I remember from a previous conversation. I was oh, like, yeah, I don't yeah, think Scott, yeah. Scott has, uh, yeah. you know, become a dad yet. Not yet. Not yet. It was not That's a knock so on. Is it not not a knock on your? I know. I'm you joking. Know, I know. Your, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure imminent future fatherhood. So, uh, as as a parent, I mean, you you look and you see your kids, and you kind of know that they're coming into a rockier world. And my kids will have a lot of advantages uh, that a lot of kids, other kids, won't. I mean, um, you saw in in my last book, I talk about how. 40% plus of American kids are born to single moms and, and other numbers where like, you can just sense that there are all of these struggles uh, baked in. Uh, a lot of kids don't really have a meaningful shot. And in the old days, you know, maybe you don't need a college education to live a good life, but it's become increasingly difficult for folks who are the lower end of the educational spectrum. And so... You know, like that. these are realities for a lot of people. A lot of this stuff opened my eyes when I was traveling the country as the CEO of Venture for America because I went to Missouri, Louisiana, Alabama, Ohio, Michigan, uh, like a, a bunch of places I hadn't spent much time in before, frankly. And, and when you get in these environments, you're like, oh, like I'm, I'm starting to get a better sense of it. Uh, and, you know, so when Trump won in 16, I saw it as like a cry for help, really, in many ways. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of people have uh, 
thankfully uh, noticed that, but not enough. And I do, I do agree that a big part of the problem is the the polarization of cable news. It's just, um, it's nice to see you every now and then when I turn on CNN. I see you commentary. I'm like, well, that's good. I'm glad they got they got him on there. Um, but it it does feel like uh, there's two different. You know, when I flip through CNN and Fox News, I feel like I'm watching two completely different humans set. You know, with like worldviews and belief systems. And you, you know what's wild, Scott, is I've now been on all the networks, and there's really, like, a different mm. energy or vibe. Mm. You know, like, when you talk about, like, different... I, even I feel like I'm visiting parallel dimensions. Like, I'm in, like, the Fox universe, and then, you yeah. know, I'm in, like, the CNN universe, and, like, it, it, it is a little wild. And then even I see myself in the clips, and, like, there's kind of a different uh, vibe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, like... A, it's, like, the same person, you know, Andrew Yang, with, like, a Fox... Chiron and then like a CNN Chiron, you know, it's like a, it's different. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a broader point there about there's a different vibes with different just sub communities. So I don't get a politician vibe from you. And I hope that you take that as a compliment. I feel like I can present you with data. I can, we can talk through the implications of, of, of certain facts and think through various policies and that you're not necessarily leading from an ideology that you're committed to no matter what. So that's kind of a different vibe. And again, I mean that in... Oh, I take that as a compliment. A high compliment from you, Scott. You know, so much of politics seems to be about appealing to voters' selfish instincts or or most immediate needs is probably a better way of putting it than selfish. Most immediate needs. How in the world can we change the incentive structure so we can get people caring about deep existential risks that are so far in the future. So there's two things. One is how do we get people to care about other people as much as they care about their own needs, you know, like making decisions and choices that may not necessarily affect their own satisfaction needs, but will help those who are really needy. Um, and then the second is how can we care about future gender people that we've never even met that aren't even alive yet, you know, like saving the planet. Scott's those two things. Kids. Oh my gosh. Let's look out for them. I, um, so I, I have some encouragement on this. Which is that right, right now, uh, it's not that people are self-serving on a policy level. Right now, they're indulgent on a tribal level. where it, it, it could, Because they're being inflamed in that way. Um, mm-hmm. So you have the different media channels uh, trying to gin you up and get you super mad about the outrage on the other side. And so when you talk about the immediate need that's being met, it's really an emotional need or a tribal need or a sense of belonging. And so our challenge then is to build a tribe that cares about long-term existential problems, that cares about the well-being of the general public, that cares about solving problems in a meaningful, measurable way. And one reason I'm excited to have this conversation with you is I have a feeling that just about everyone that listens to you naturally kind of harkens toward that tribe. And you don't need 51% of Americans to be part of that tribe. I'm saying you need 10%. Uh, and I, I actually have a feeling that if you built a really strong 5%, you'd be in great shape. <laughs> so, so, that, that's, so one of the insights from my book um, that I've taken probably too much to heart is that politics is tribal. And so when you are trying to create a new dynamic, then what you're doing is you're raising a banner and saying, hey, I've got a new tribe. It's the forward tribe. And we're graceful and tolerant, and we like facts, and we want to measure things, and 
we think tribalism is going to destroy us all. <laughs> we think that it's the underlying system and that if you engage in this back and forth battle, no one's going to win and it's going to make us all insane and let's have intelligent conversations and maybe we can start a channel around that. So, so that's the tribe, man. That's one reason why I'm uh, joyful to be here with you because I feel like you're one of the chieftains of this tribe without even knowing it. You know, it's like, you know, you just, you're just Scott, you, you know, do, um, the best work that, that you can every day. Um, Thank but you. That, that, yeah. that is the hope I would give you, which is that if this stuff is all tribal, which it is, uh, can yeah. we create our own tribe of people who are looking out into the horizon? I love that. You know, because we are tribal humans, and I think that uh, those who claim that, uh, that, you know, there are people that are like, I'm not in any tribe, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, apolitical. You know, I think are fooling them, deceiving themselves. They're, no, well, I, that's I a tribe in itself. I don't hate it, but it, it is funny, Scott, where it's like we have to build a tribe of non-joiners <laughs> because the, yes. the people who uh, yes. let, let's describe someone who's hyper rational. If you're hyper rational, it is irrational to get involved in politics. Mm. You know, like, let that sink in for just a moment. <laughs> where it's like, let's see, I get involved, 50% of people will throw rocks at me, um, the odds of my actually pushing through one of these big changes, like a little bit on the lowest side, uh, you know, I could invest my time in a new book, in like the latest show, and like, you know, like anything might, might spark joy, and then if someone starts talking politics to me, I can just like recede and being like, you do you. And, you know, like I, I will like what I just described is a perfectly rational approach. And, and so the challenge for one, and I, I'm proud that I played a role in this, so for at least some people, is to say, look, you're being rational. Thumbs up. It's awesome. There are a lot of us. <laughs> and so we, we can become the tribe of rationality. And then when someone makes the tribal appeal, you can be like, you know what? I understand why you're so animated about that. But, you know, like, uh, let's talk through, like, you know, what we could actually do to, like, improve that problem. Like, you know, and, and if you want to vilify that entire crew of tens of millions of people, it's like, well, I'm sure there are some excellent people within any group of tens of millions of humans. <laughs> 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 No, I, I hear you. I totally hear you, brother. I, I, let's just think this through for a second, though, because I think that um, I take maybe a little bit different view in that I'm all about finding a universalism tribe that includes as many people as possible under it. I would almost prefer – the rationality tribe seems too limiting to me. I would, I would prefer like a humanistic tribe or like some sort of tribe where everyone rallies around how can we help everyone in the society – um, have fulfilled the same basic needs that we all care about as humans. A sort of like a, a there, there are just certain human basic things that we all can rally around. Because with the with the rationality one, you're going to have so much of society not rallying around that. I'm saying, oh, those those academic elites, you know, thinking smart, they probably think I'm stupid, you know, and that doesn't well, include uh, them. As long as you, you don't think anyone's stupid, which I happen not to really, like, I, I think that, you know what I mean? That's true. Um, but, I do know what you mean. But, but yeah. your humanistic tribe, love yeah. it too. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in that <laughs> tribe too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like I, Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, one of the, that's one of the things too that I was so proud of, Scott, on the presidential yeah. campaign campaign 
uh, where we attracted people that weren't political and weren't were were from every point in the socioeconomic spectrum. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's because of the vibe. Like a, a lot of very regular yeah. people saw Yang and were like, I think he's a regular person and he does not seem to look down or talk down to me or anyone. And I like it. I'm into it. You know what I mean? Like, like they, they, I remember one thing that actually really did irk me is that when I was on the Democratic debate stage and they asked like, hey, have you made a friend that, you know, would be surprising? And I said, well, I made friends with this uh, truck driver supported Trump, but now he's supporting me. And then the press was like, that's impossible. That's like a made up <laughs> political thing. And then they had to find him. And he was like, yeah, it's true. And he was like this. <laughs> the rest of it, because um, because in, in many ways, the media wants to divide us into these like weird camps. And it's like, hey, like, no way the educated Asian dude could be friends with a Trump supporting truck driver. It's like, I actually really like Fred. He's like a good dude. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure if you lined up, frankly, like a hundred Trump supporting truck drivers, I'd probably like more than one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I, I think like likability is underrated and the need to, the, 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 the need to divide is overrated, you know, because you know, some people say to me things like, you're too nice, Scott. Like, you should, like, you, this person believes in this. You should just be mean to them. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I could go to, I could go to a Trump rally. I'm pretty convinced that if I went to one, I would make a lot of friends there without, before even talking about politics at all, you know, just like, like, hey, what are you all up to this weekend? Just treating, just talking human to human, right? And I think that there's something to be said. And I'm going to stand by this. I think there's something to be said. By leading with, what am I trying to lead with? Leading with, with grace and and inclusion. With, with leading with like the universal human attributes that we all share in common. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It, it's yeah. It, it, a lot of it is the media, man. I mean, like if you took yeah. the media out of the equation, we'd be in better shape. <laughs> agreed. Absolutely agreed. Mm. So why should we tax robots? Uh, because they can't vote. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, because they're going to do more and more work. And if we don't capture some of that value, then we're going to be in a bit of trouble. Um, we're entering a very strange economic zone anyway right now, man. I mean, people talk about this. Um, but yeah, taxing robots would help a lot. And AI. Yeah, you can throw AI in, in there with robots. <laughs> tax them too. Yang yeah. hates the AI. No, Yang's cool with AI, but we should really tax it. I have one of my, uh, I don't tell many people this, one of my majors undergraduate degrees is in human-computer interaction at uh, Carnegie Mellon, the Human-Computer Interaction Computer Science Institute. <laughs> that's pretty nerdy, Scott. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's pretty, that's why I don't tell too many people. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's great potential there. There's also you know, good and bad potential for, for how that can all turn out. Um, so I really do like the idea of taxing that. And, um, and I like how you've pointed out throughout your whole campaign for all your campaigns, the psychological effects of automatization and for a lot of people that starting to feel useless in society. I mean, the need to matter, man, that is, that's the big one, right? How do we get everyone in the society feeling a need that that need is fulfilled? Yes. Uh, the mm. need to matter, the need to be uh, valued. Mm. Yeah, so I'm going to run something by you real quick, Scott. Because I had a conversation with uh, Zach, uh, my colleague, uh, about this. And when you talk about the failure of mattering, 
Um, there, there's like a phenomenon right now that I was trying to address when I ran for president and I talk about in my last book that uh, a lot of communities have gotten blasted away economically and uh, a lot of them are rural and white. And so there's like a loss of meaning and purpose and they, they feel undervalued and then Trump comes and, and gins them up. Um, and, and and then on the other side, you have like a, like a bit of a lack of sympathy, shall I say. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, the, the Democrats, they tend to be in more educated, uh, prosperous, urban, densely populated zones. Uh, and so the, this challenge of having people find meaning, uh, I think is the fundamental one. Um, and then you have more and more people losing that sense of hope and optimism and fulfillment and feeling like you're in a world where, where you matter. Uh, and then some very, very awful things can transpire um, pretty, pretty quickly. I completely agree. So, so the, in many ways, the, the road has to be about a restoration of meaning. Mm. Um, now, I mean, is that something a government can provide? I mean, it's debatable. The government, I think, can help. Um, but the challenges run very, very deep. I mean, even just having pol- leaders and politicians that, through their rhetoric, inspires and unites is really underrated. <laughs> just that, you know, even if like these things don't even turn into real policy changes. Um, I mean, that would, of course, be wonderful and nice. But um, so much of hope is practical and we need to make those policy changes. But a lot of it is psychological. And I just think there needs to be more of that messaging among politicians. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I you know. I, I I do know, and and that is the level. Uh, that, that's the level we have to get to, my friend. Like the personal psychological mm. level. This is something that occasionally people turn to me for, and it's something that I have not delved into or focused on. I mean, I've, I've you know gone through some things and done some work myself, but a lot of the solutions that I, I advocate are very macro. <laughs> like, like I'm not really yeah. like a. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I have some basic things that I do that I'm like, hey, make a list of things you're grateful for, get outside, do some exercise, call your mom. Like, you know, like I I do say things like that an awful lot, which, by the way, I totally endorse and I do those things. (laughs) But um, anyway, like, um, you know, I had dinner with Marianne Williamson uh, the other night and now she's like elevated at this self-development. You know, I mean, she's a self-help guru, which makes sense. And, and one of our proposals was like, hey, the country could kind of use a self-help help guru right now. And mm. I, I don't disagree. I'm like, yeah, Marianne, <laughs> they could use you. Uh, a science-based self-help guru, though. You know, something that's... I, that's I'm into good. it. In fact, I'm, I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so you've already talked at extensive uh, in other areas and venues about your human-centered capitalism, that humanity is more important than money, that the unit of an economy is each person, not each dollar, and that markets exist to serve our common goals and interests. Love it. Um, I was curious, how come in your six principles of the forward party, you didn't add – like if you ever add a number seven, what do you think about adding human-centered education? How come education kind of gets left off in a lot of these kinds of party uh, principle initiatives? I'm into human-centered education. I know. Um, I love what you're about. I know this is what you do. And, it, it, I mean, it heart, it, it's heartbreaking what's happening in schools around the country right now. You know, I mean, you, you lived a version of a failing education system. We've got a lot of kids right now that are getting traumatized. And, mm. yeah, I, I would love to deinstitutionalize it and humanize it. Mm. 
Do you think, what do you see of the role of the government in doing that? Or do you think it's more up to uh, individual states and individual... Yeah, like, what what do you think about, like, that, that toggle between um, governmental versus state role in, in, uh, in education? I would like to see the resources that are heading to schools be channeled more effectively. Mm. The, the most impressive schools I've been a part of really had a strong culture and leadership. Some of them were based in communities and, and whatnot. I think it's very hard to legislate that culture, you know what I mean? Um, I, and and we, we should be trying to reward measurements. Like if a school's producing, yes. then you get behind it and you, know, you rev it up, put resources to work um, because they have a culture and, and a leadership and a bunch of other things that are working. A good school should be treated like magic. Be like, how do we, you know, expand the magic? That reminds me of my just. I don't know if you ever met Andrew Mangino at the Future Project. Did you ever meet him? Do you know anything about the? Future? Anyway, he likes to uh, put the magic into the education system. So that just made me think about that. I guess I like Andrew. I hope you meet him someday. But anyway, um, I'm going to leave today on two quotes of yours that I'm hoping just inspires everyone listening to this podcast. Regardless of your political party, our institutions are hanging by a thread. The challenge is to rebuild them as quickly as possible to address the true needs of our time. If we actually want to rise to this challenge, we have no time to waste. Let's solve the real problems together. No one else is coming. There is no cavalry. It's only us. Let's move this country of ours, the one we love, and we'll leave to our children forward. Man, I can't thank you enough, Andrew, for being on my podcast, but just for the the energy and the goodness and goodwill and honesty and truth and integrity and grace that you put into this world. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Scott. Proud to consider you, you a friend. And uh, yeah, like, uh, let, let's take your vision, make it a reality as quickly as we can while we have this time, man, before your kids arrive. <laughs> yes, we got yes. to get it done. Might be some time, though, <laughs> but thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.